Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupana Padgiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Vicky Karamenas and Adam Getsi. Vicky is a professor of fashion at Massey University, New Zealand, and an honorary research fellow at the Center for Visual Arts, Melbourne University. She is a cultural theorist with an expertise in gender and sexuality and a background in the visual arts. She is currently a visiting academic at the Gender and Women's History Research Center, Australian Catholic University. Adam Gadzi is an artist and writer who teaches at Sydney College of the Arts at the University of Sydney. In today's conversation, we are going to talk about their recent book, Gastro Fashion, From Hotte Cuisine to Hotte Couture, Fashion and Food, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. I welcome both of you to the discussion. Thank, Thank you. you. It's, wonderful to, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you so much. So let me begin by asking both of you about the motivation behind putting this book together so that our listeners get a sense of you know, where you are coming from. Well, Adam and I have co-authored and worked together for many years, for roughly, I would say, 15 years, and we have about oh, 15 books together. So we're um, collaborators and we have a lot of ideas and our ideas because we both come from very different um, well, we sort of come from the same. We come from arts and humanities, but we come from kind of different areas. Uh, we Our strengths come together to produce books, and we've produced about 15 books together. When we were writing um, and researching one of uh, fashion installation, um, which is another book that was uh, with Bloomsbury, published with Bloomsbury, um, and was released in, I think it was 219, we noticed that um, we were writing about the way that designers are using space, not just the catwalk, but, um, you know, um, retail spaces and shop windows to, in, in a kind of, in a sense of an art form in order to show their work. And it was through um, that kind of book that we noticed that there was a relationship uh, between fashion and um, food. A lot of um, designers were opening up, um, you know, restaurants. And, I mean, this isn't new. This has been going on for quite a long time. But there was um, a lot of designers opening up restaurants. For example, Prada opened up, Patizzeria Prada, and, you know, Louis Vuitton had a restaurant. And there was a lot of restaurants in order to entice um, young people to come in, sit down with their friends, and then go shopping. And so we started talking about this idea about the relationship between food and fashion and really the body. And that's what food and fashion have in common. It's the body. It's a kind of, you know, um, holy trinity, if I can use that term. Um, so we started talking about this idea and how the relationship between the food and body come together. And, you know, that's how we came up with um, 
the idea, the the term gastro fashion, which Adam will talk about. But we approached our um, editor at uh, Bloomsbury with this idea, and she said, "Go for it." So we put together a proposal, and the proposal was accepted by three blind reviewers, and we went ahead and started our research. Um, and that's the kind of how you know gastro fashion was born, so to speak. Thank you, Vicky, for explaining that so well. It gives a great sense of how the book came about. Uh, could you also please comment on your methods and the sources that you use in the book? Okay, so um, with um, fashion, a lot of the material is um, from catwalk and the way that fashion is represented in made in catwalk on the internet. Um, for example, also. Um, um, you know, in editorials. So we looked at the way that fashion is represented um, on the catwalk and a lot of designers were using food recently to as part of their catwalk, as part of their collections really. Um, so the kind of methods we used in a sense um, was, you know, kind of mixed methods. We used internet-mediated research we, we went into archives, we looked at cookbooks, we looked at old recipes, um, we looked at archives and photographs. Of, um, so we did a lot of visual research uh, behind this book. Um, in a sense, in order, we also did, um, you know, the kind of historical background. We went back to, you know, the Renaissance um, and we looked at the kind of theoretical framework around the book was namely kind of, you know, work um, from sociologists and philosophers and, and early gastronomers really around, uh, around, you know, fashion and manners and dress. Um, and we brought that together as a kind of theoretical arc for the book. Um, yeah, and in a sense, you know, we were kind of gastro-genealogists really, I would call us, going back into kind of you know, history in a sense and retrieving the past in order to make sense of, you know, the way we understand um, fashion and its relationship with the body and its relationship with food. Right. So what um, exactly is it that, you know, connects gastronomy to fashion and uh, what is gastrofashion? So uh, gastrofashion is the conjunction of gastronomy and fashion. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the connection there is one as uh, um, uh, the connection there is where um, it has its origins in the birth of the court and the court's courtly spectacle. So that's the Holy Roman Emperor in the Renaissance of Charles V, Francois I, and then also uh, the court earlier than that of Charles, uh, uh, Charles VI in France. And uh, the idea of, uh, and, and with that comes the, um, the development of also the independent artist in the Renaissance. So when we talk about art these days, we generally think of it in terms of from the, from the Renaissance onward, but that also, um, because that's, that's coterminous with the idea of the independent artist, the genius, but with all of that also comes the idea of the entrepreneur the entrepreneur and which were the, the first real main entrepreneurs with the Medici's and one of the ways of consolidating their power as sort of usurper bankers usurers and into aristocrats was the spectacle of art but also the spectacle of courtly life and uh, of their of clothing and and of eating 
So um, much was made of that moment of, um, of eating. Um, it might surprise people that the main meal of the day was the equivalent of what in, in um, the Tudor England of Henry VIII was actually what we would refer to as brunch. So it came around about 11 o'clock. Um, and so it occupied a sort of centrepiece of the day. Um, but with, with that was a kind of, um, uh, was uh, you also um, dressed for the part and that was a kind of spectacle of um, consumption. So it became the conspicuous consumption of, of uh, in terms of what you wore, but also what you actually physically consumed. And, and that hasn't changed the present day because, uh, as we say very, very early in the book, I think almost in the introductory paragraph, the idea of dressing up for dinner is one of the uh, key moments in which we kind of encounter the nexus between uh, gastronomy. Right. So how does the body become a site of power, display and resistance in both fashion and food? Uh, this is a really interesting question. It's a very, you know, deep question um, and complex question um, in the way that a body and fashion and food are connected. Um, so um, fashion is an embodied practice. It's about the body. It's worn on the body. So the body is dressed um, in a way. Even when the body is naked, it's still dressed. And what I mean by that, that the body is a social body, it's a lived body, um, and our bodies are marked by, you know, discourses of age, sexuality, gender, um, you know, and so forth. And um, dress and fashion has been used as a very powerful um way of expressing sexuality in, as in you know once upon a time we had um you know uh, you know lgbtq were subcultures in a sense you know they're not subcultures anymore um in in the west anyway um so the body has been used to tell as a kind of confessional to tell the rest of the world who we are in in the sense of how we dress it's been used as a political weapon um, you know, we diet, in, we control our bodies through various technologies. Um, for example, dieting is a way we control our bodies. And, of course, you know, um, fashion and the fashion industry has been, has been guilty of kind of, you know, harnessing these kind of ideologies around the body and about dieting and ideal bodies um, and produced kind of, you know, the thin body as opposed to, you know, the fat body or, you know, which was, you know, fashionable around the Middle Ages, which was a mark of class. So we also noticed in our research that, you know, the ideas around the body um, and dresses shifted dramatically, of course, because fashion is... Um, very much also about identity and identity we know is not fixed um but moving you know constantly moving and shifting um so there are many many examples where um you know uh, even now with accessories with for example the me too movement the adoption of the pussy hat you know by feminists as you know a um as a garment of political protest um, has been used, and there are many examples in, in in that sense. But when we're talking about food and fashion, it's you know it's about technologies of the body um, and the way that we control our body through food, 
and um, what we, you know, eat and what we don't eat. Right. Again, thank you for that response. Um, I also wanted to know if, you know, uh, there exists a nexus between commodity and judgment in both fashion and gastronomy. And how did it historically develop? So um, you'd have to probably clarify that question because I don't know what you mean by the nexus between commodity and judgment. Yeah. So uh, in the sense that do you think that there is an intersection that the two come together? Uh, well, we've been talking about that up until now. Um, we've established that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what about the historical development and, you know, uh, the role of France, particularly Paris in this context? So it might, again, one of the surprises um, that in, in when you when you delve into history, um, it's uh, it's really interesting to see the origins of things are, are really not where you would expect them to be. You know, like uh, uh, tulips are not from uh, Holland and uh, paprika is not from Hungary. And uh, and many other things besides, and uh, so it's uh, it it, it uh, the origins of gastronomy as we understand it in terms of the idea of it being a value system and a series of symbols that are kind of transacted beyond that of just simply the alimentary, which elementary or alimentary, which is just nourishment. Um, when it becomes a more signifying system, which is uh, ranges across uh, status and, and consumption. Um, it originated, in fact, in Italy. So that's why I sort of made my quick uh, comment about the Medici. Um, but uh, it quickly migrates to, to France, and I mentioned already before that uh, Francois I, um, but really kind of developing um, uh, with uh, Louis XIV. And Louis XIV is, as we've mentioned in other books as well, is a kind of strange historical blessing to France because it was because of his um, Louis the Fifteenth inherited uh, a, a regime that was already financially stretched, stretched before, which I mean I know I've simplified, but uh, led to the French Revolution. But it was um, uh, Louis the Fourteenth's obsession with public works status, but also institutionalisation, um, that led to the kind of um, idea of, of, of uh, well, it gave us a sense of national value, which was based on sign systems to do with consumption, sumptuousness, and prestige, and, and the elite. And gastronomy is one integer among all of those things. So it's actually from Louis XIV that we have this idea of the signifier of France being um, the place of um, prestige and hedonism. So uh, that coupled with um, uh, France's um, incredible uh, uh, topography and demography that it can actually support with its uh, uh, support support the kinds of foodstuffs that it does. And of course, as we know that uh, we have all the world jockeying for some of the greatest wines that can only be produced in some of the greatest regions in France. So um, this uh, developed from... And in the 14th century, uh, sorry, in Louis the 14th and the 17th century, and uh, um, in as a result of the French Revolution, uh, we have the beginnings of the first what, what we understand to be coffee houses, coffee houses just before and then uh, as a pl places of meeting. There are also taverns and coffee houses in uh, in in England, London as well, but these really kind of blossomed as places of meeting and places of discussion and as melting pots. Um, um, from the revolution uh, onward. And with this, you have um, that, uh, you know, the old saying of the, um, 
of the aristocrat and the peasant sitting at the same table. It wasn't that uh, at that extreme, but you do have a kind of um, a melange of, of different kinds of types, which also already occurred in the salon system by the middle of the 18th century in France, where you had uh, educated commoners rub shoulders with the white aristocrats. But this burgeoned um, to a degree um, that was unforeseen in the with the French Revolution, the idea of communal sharing, and uh, that uh, the the captain's table, as it were, was not necessarily reserved for the captain and the officers. So probably the first um, celebrity chef, as we would understand it retrospectively, was a guy called uh, uh, um, Antoine Carême, C-A-R-E, um, uh, um, um, circumflex M-E. And uh, he became the um, chef to some um, great historic people who actually used him as we, I guess, do these days when, when celebrities invite celebrity chefs or or celebrity um, comedians to be part of their party. Um, they become um, sign, also uh, signifiers of the kind of prestige that they're able to um, broker. So um, this, the, um, the kinds of feasts that uh, he was able to, to create, he was, wasn't just a, 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 a person who put a great meal on the plate, that was actually um, the idea of the discrete plate as, to both, as opposed to the, the large table um, ornamentation, as it was originally originally conceived by Karem, which was, and he was all very much interested in architecture as well. So he had these huge visual displays, uh, which people then would uh, serve themselves from or be served from, uh, served, um, from um, by servants. But the idea of the sit down and the discrete plate called um, the Russian style of, of, of eating, à la Russe, the Russian style. And that became enormously useful because it was far more economical, it's far more transactional, and therefore that that became the sort of state um, staple style or the the, the, the main style for um, burgeoning uh, restaurants. That also burgeoned as a result, not just of um, uh, the technologies that were developing as in the nineteenth century um, in 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 and for themselves within interiors. And, uh, uh, the development late in the 19th century, of course, from gaslight to, to electricity and so on. But most critically was the development of railway, ra railways in, um, throughout Europe. And restaurants became the far, far more auspiced and far more luxuriant versions of the kind of tavern pit stop that you had in the very, very arduous and uncomfortable journeys of uh, horse and carriage. So... Um, it was a kind of combination of travel, technology, transaction, and revolution, and uh, even what what precipitated revolution in in the in in, in excess and uh, flamboyance and prestige um, that uh, brings that uh, coalesces, I guess, in the French dream. And and uh, I really do love. Um, there's an expression um, in uh, in Germ in in German, which is you know, how was your holiday? And it, um, in German, the equivalent is, I lived like a god in France. And uh, that can pertain to anything, but that really pertains as well to, um, to fashion and uh, to, to gastronomy. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Uh, so my next question is uh, that how do ideas of spectacle and consumption historically enter the domain of gastronomy, if you could talk about it with a few examples? 
So um, I, 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 I have actually already touched on, on, on some of those themes already, but um, what you, well, it, it sort of accelerates in the so-called um, era we refer to as um, the, the fin du siècle, which is the end of the century, or the Belle Epoque. Um, and one of the things in our researchers that I remember discussing with, um, with Vicky, um, I went to, uh, conferred with um, a, an eminent, he's retired now, Yale professor, John Merriman, who wrote on the Belle Epoque. And he makes it very, very clear that the Belle Epoque, as we call it, was not actually the joyous affair that we see it to be. Um, because there were many, many underclasses that supported the people who were actually uh, enjoying the bell of that epoch. Um, but nonetheless, um, by the end of the um, 19th century, and as I said, um, accelerated by this new concept of travel and tourism, um, you have the concept, you, you have the idea of the large, the large restaurant, which was then, uh, I guess, in a sense. Uh, created, if, if, if by anyone else, between a kind of collaboration between um, César Ritz and Auguste Goffier, Goffier being probably the best known of the sort of early celebrity chefs. And, uh, um, and César Ritz was from, uh, was from, uh, um, was from Switzerland, uh, Goffier was from France, but they had an opportunity uh, to set up um, a um, the, the restaurant and the hotel in the Savoy, which still exists. Now, important to this, key to the gastro-fashion concept is the Savoy was next to next to the, to the Savoy Theatre, and so the idea was that people came pre and after theatre to then dine at the Savoy, and so this is crucial in terms of the kinds of material cultures and the cultures of of display and consumption that were really, really um, accelerating by this time. And one of the things um, that Ritz, who was an extraordinary businessman, but he also had, um, in terms of garnering business, in terms of how he dealt with um, finances, um, they both of them left under a bit of a cloud in terms of how he diddled the finances. Um, and um, But he was a very, very good businessman in terms of generating business. And uh, one of the things that he did was introduce, for example, uh, in the restaurant, um, a huge flower arrangement. So that was a really important part of it. So that the so that the uh, the, the women who came, the the duchesses, but also the people from the demi monde who were the not so the people that were trying to get up in the world, but also nevertheless quite looked very good, but were trying to find themselves uh, a richer aristocratic husband, um, could look in even more enhanced and glamorous um, in. In the environs of that kind of, of the restaurant that he, he laid out, so it was very much a kind of visual spectacle. And so, when we think about the visual spectacle, that again um, brings us back to the con concepts enshrined in gastro fashion, because it's it's we also talk about fashions in food and so on. But it's very very important to note that contemporary gastronomy is also caught up in look, uh, 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 just as much. Uh, high-end gastronomy is consumed through photographs. When we go and check out a restaurant, we look at their photographs of food. We don't taste it. And it's how it's arranged on the plate. So it's this, this transitory artwork um, that was then uh, inaugurated by Escoffier. And Escoffier also introduced the sort of name dish in homage, like most, I think, best known to, to most of your listeners will be the Peach Melba from the Dame Nelly Mel Melba, the famous, um, uh, actually, Melbourne-born 
um, soprano, but he was also deeply enamoured of Sarah Bernhardt, possibly one of the only men who who did, uh, Sarah Bernhardt did bed, who 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 came to her private rooms. But whenever she was uh, playing in London, and um, uh, Escoffier would make a point of making her supper in her own uh, suite. So this relationship between uh, high-end cooking and also celebrity, and um, because this was a place uh, increasingly of public spectacle, both outside and inside, this has been much commented upon, and I'm sure uh, your other podcasts talk about the, the boulevards in Paris and uh, the spectacle of modernity. And um, so, the, so the idea of dining alone was something that uh, was either something where the equivalent of taking a snack or, or a takeout meal, as we would do today, but if you really did dine, as it were, in di fine dining, you would always, always do that in a public space and would always look um, look your best and play the part. Right. So um, are there any similarities between celebrity chefs and celebrity designers? I think, um, you know, um, there is, when we think about celebrity chefs, we think about, you know, Jamie Oliver or kind of recent kind of uh, contemporary celebrity chefs. But the idea, and, I'll, and you know, I'll just mention this, and I, and I think Adam has a lot to say about um, celebrity chef. We have, a, we have a chapter in the book where we talk about the kind of early um, celebrity chefs um, Karem, and then also the the you know the relationship or you know with celebrity designers, um, and there is there is because they are both tastemakers. They kind of uh, produce the kind of fashionable taste for the particular time, be it in food or be it in clothes. Um, and when we talk about you know the kind of early celebrity designers, really we can go back to Frederick Worth who, you know, had a salon who, you know, they kind of call, he was the so-called father or the beginning of haute couture. And his salon was in um, Paris, even though he was in, you know, he was born and raised in England. And he he had a salon. His salon was, um, you know, three stories. It was a building. Um, he had very wealthy women coming in. And he was the first kind of designer to offer, um, he used to offer little glasses of Madeira wine and biscuits. And he was the first to do that in a kind of salon setting. Um, Adam, do you want to pick up from me here? Um, sure. Um, About Karem? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, Karem, I mean, is, 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 uh, was cooked famously for people like uh, Talleyrand and uh, who then served, of course, Napoleon. Uh, I've mentioned Escoffier, and there's uh, a lot of really great literature on that uh, on the uh, um, on that that's been produced uh, recently. Um, but um, the 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 relationship between celebrity chefs and celebrity designers is one which uh, is both material. I mean, the interesting thing is that um, uh, if I remember cor correctly, uh, Worth um, his, his rooms, his first rooms would de Provence, which was behind the opera, but not very, very far from where the Ritz uh, resulted, um, ended up as well. And of course, um, you have the the, um, the Ritz as we know it in the Place Vendôme, um, as, as you said, yeah, um, if I remember rightly. Um, and of course, um, designers, most famously Chanel during the war years of Second World War, 
uh, languished in, um, in in the Ritz. So it's 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 this idea that um, uh, that uh, say for example a designer um, traditionally uh, it would be that uh, you would um, design a collection, you celebrate that collection, and then you would go off and then you would go to a, a particular restaurant where you would know the the, the chef and then celebrate that um, the celebration of body with the celebration of gut. Um, and but what's kind of interesting is that there are moments that we have is a in, when we just fast forward into say the 1990s and uh, you have a sort of uh, a more sort of um, making pedestrian or making common or making familiar um, a, a sort of um, a, a, a more sort of agnostic and democratic approach uh, both to fashion. Of course, there's the huge casualization which everyone wears uh, jeans and a T-shirt, but also with the um, figures such as uh, Jamie Oliver, who was very popular in the, the UK, didn't do so well in the United States, uh, probably through overconfidence. But you have this idea that particularly with um, the growth of um, TV celebrity chefs, the first probably most major one is Julia Child, um, and um, in which uh, then, which is also coexistent with um, uh, the, the greater availability of different kinds of appliances, um, the, that, 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 that period during the sort of baby burner post-war era uh, where there was a kind of the paradigm of the stay-at-home mother and, uh, and the sort of the so-called utopia or the hell of kind of domestic bliss, domestic bliss defined by all these new appliances, but particularly with the with the the um, development of technology of the washing machine, or beyond all else, really, um, mothers at home of middle class families found themselves with a lot more time on their hands, and they had, and also, and then on the other uh, on the other side of it, they found themselves with a much greater avail availability of produce. Uh, nothing on what the level of availability there is today, but certainly, certainly proportionate goes without saying um, with um, the war years. But I'm maybe comparing it with the 1930s, which was also fairly ravaged as, um, uh, with um, uh, prohibition and and uh, and uh, the depression. So there becomes an interest in uh, food and gastronomy as a kind of a hobby, and um, the, the the some of the celebrity chefs. Um, become uh, involved or become celebrities, not necessarily because they are the greatest chefs, but because they're able to disseminate uh, their um, uh, their ideas and methods to to the greater public. And equally so, you also have at the same time as the you know the dissemination of um, the, these kinds of cooks on television. You have uh, the 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 growth of um, the um, syndicalizing and uh, diversification. Of fashion that we find in someone like Pierre Cardin, he was one of the first people to diversify and syndicalize his brand across, um, uh, you know, different manufacturers across um, Europe, but also in Asia. He was the first to do that. And that's common all major brands now. But there's this idea of um, accessibility that we find both in fashion that emerge in the 1980s and uh, well, um, uh, 1970s and 1980s, um, and and food. Um, today, think, uh, so I just sorry. finished the yeah, yeah. finished the thought. Finished the thought. I think today we have that still, um, but there is a growing interest now in more prestige brands and more prestige um, 
uh, prestige cooks as some of these become their, their names and uh, of, of cooks, chefs become more available through the internet. Click on and find, you know, the, the top 10 Michelin uh, restaurants in France. And these are easily at the fingertips so that they, there's now a greater interest now on, on that high end um, increasingly as a change from the last 20 years ago. I think, uh, yeah, I just want to pick up on what Adam um, mentioned in terms of, you know, Elizabeth David, um, uh, that, you know, around the post-war period that she appealed and she became very popular because it was, you know, to to women who after the post-war were kind of, you know, um, in a way um, given all these kind of white goods in order to stay at home and cook and so forth and step away from work. So, the, so men um, coming back from the war would have, you know, occupations. Um, and so in a sense, Elizabeth David and these kind of chefs that became celebrity chefs are very much about um, the kind of cultural terrain at a particular kind of moment. Let's think of um, Jamie Oliver. Uh, or Nigella Lawson. Well, Jamie Oliver came about in the kind of 90s and he was very much fashioned and styled around this idea of the new lad. And if we kind of look at the kind of history of menswear and um, kind of masculinity and men's fashion, you know, in the kind of, you know, 80s we had the new man, which were these, these were kind of mediated um, masculinities that were built around these ideas that, you know, for example, the, the, new, the new man was, um, you know, sensitive, but he had an interest in fashion and, um, you know, an interest in um, raising children. And this was about the time, especially in the UK, when men were, there was industrial action and men were um, losing their positions and women were, were gaining and moving up the corporate ladder. So in terms of the corporate ladder and women, you had this, mani- you know, you kind of had this manifested in fashion. There was the A-line silhouette. There was, you know, what we called power suits and, you know, padded shoulders and men kind of who had lost their jobs through, you know, various industrial actions, um, you know, were spending time at home. And so this kind of new man, this mediated man that was played out in magazines and on media um, kind of emerged by about the 90s when England, who kind of, you know, the UK had this kind of drab idea of food, which was either, you know, pretty much everything was boiled, um, even though Elizabeth David had changed that quite a bit. Um, the UK and England was very much about um, rebranding London um, and rebranding um, England as a kind of very much like what, you know, a kind of swinging 60s, what was happening in the swinging 60s. And the swinging 60s in London was about fashion and, you know, music and food and um and so the government at the time wanted to rebrand England to this idea of a cool Britannia um, in steps, you know, the kind of chefs and food and fashion was very much uh, part of that kind of, and I could call it propaganda, really, and a kind of rebranding. Um, so after the new man in terms of masculinities, we, you know, the 80s came about and it was um, the new lad and the new lad was the opposite of the new man. 
He was kind of, you know, loved to go to football. He was kind of hung out with his mates. And really women for him were really just about sex. He wasn't really interested in women other than sexual partners. And Jamie Oliver was kind of fashioned around this idea of the new lad he all his cooking you know programs and his episodes he was there in the kitchen with his mates in a sense it was a kind of bromance you know and um he was uh, dressed as a kind of you know with sneakers and van sneakers and very casual and he would try all this food and he would cook and what he did was take your average kind of guy into the kitchen um and um yeah, so he was very much a tastemaker and um, a change maker, really, if I can use the two terms together. Right. Uh, thank you, both of you. Uh, last question. What do you think would be the future scope of research in this area? And do you think, are you asking us generally in the area? Yes, generally. Well, there's, there's quite a bit of work now. Um, Melissa Mara who is a curator of education at um, the Fashion Institute of New York, FIT, the museum. She, as well as Elizabeth Way, who are um, who, who is a, a curator, have edited a volume called Fashion and Food, and they are having an exhibition in September at the museum around food as well as a symposium. So there's a lot of interest at the moment, and that's because, you know, um, I think, you know, and we talk about this in the book, I think this kind of interest in food and fashion has come about also because of COVID. Um, you know, people, with, you know, when you're forced to stand, you know, be in a line, stand in the line to buy your food, um, you know, you kind of think about food and the only place if you can go really to, to see anybody because everyone was in lockdown was the supermarket. So in a way, the supermarket became the catwalk. Um, yeah, so there's a lot, there's a lot at the moment, um, a lot of work around the, you know, around food and its relationship with fashion. Um, yeah. So in terms of I think this would continue, um, but in terms of for us, where our research is. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we just move on with ideas that we have. All right. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about your book. It was lovely listening to you, you and engaging with it. And I hope our listeners actually go and pick up and read the book. So thank you once again. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you.